Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. One, three, two, one, and we're on air. It's uh, City Limits. It's the, um, I think it's the second winter of the month. Isn't supposed to be energy. And on this on this day, we're going to open the program in a few minutes, in about 10 minutes or so. We're going to have a, 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 a repeat, in fact, of what was on Earth Matters on Sunday morning, our environment program a couple of weeks ago. A terrific interview about um, a legal attempt to... Uh, Save the planet, but we'll leave it till then. It's uh, it's a, it was such a good interview. I thought we may as well put it on. I thought we could get the 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 the, the lawyer on, but then why waste an interview that's already been done? We can sit back for twenty minutes and uh, <laughs> and practice sloth. Sounds good so, to me. Oh, wonderful! Yeah. So um, we will be playing that, but uh, I'm, we're playing it because it was such a very good interview. I thought it should be repeated, and and um, if those people did hear it, well, I'm sure you won't mind hearing it again anyway. And the second half, uh, Mark, we've got someone coming in who's uh, talking about transport issues, disability. Yeah, we do. Um, his name's Aaron, and he's making a documentary on issues around disability and public transport in Melbourne. So he'll be coming in. Now, while you're uh, explaining that, I'll just pour some tea here. We'll, we'll, okay, okay, yeah. You go. Well, that was pretty much it, really, But because um, <laughs> I don't know much about it. All I know is that he, he's, he's doing good work. He's um, been working on this documentary for some time. He's very passionate about um, disabled issues, uh, people with disabilities, and accessing public transport. He's got a lot to talk about, and I think there are quite a lot of issues there that um, some of us might not realise. So Mm. it'll be interesting to hear his insights. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so that's today's programme, and um, and we've got other things to talk about. I guess we should open by acknowledging... um, the the sadly untimely death of John Clark. Very and, uh, sad news. Very he sad was a, news. A great satirist, and uh, and John um, John of course lived just um, just the back of here um, behind three CR. And did uh, he? He, he, he radiothon he, he, radiothons he often came in and did promotions for us. And uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and in fact, when we used to go to a coffee lounge the other way, um, John uh, would often be down the street having a coffee at the one just down here. And really? And we'd often have a chat, because we did an interview. Um, I didn't know him all that well, but we did an interview um, a few years ago now. Three of us were interviewed uh, about political satire, including John, and um, so we... I yeah. see. And what came out of that, what came out of knowing him the way I, you know, in the limited way I did was what an incredibly wonderful mind he had and oh, what, yeah. what wonderful interests he had in life. And Absolutely. All place. He, had, it was a, it was a great, he had great interest in the English language as such, yeah. uh, but also issues like Ireland and all sorts of things. It was just amazing. But, and, you know, and as we know, a very funny man on top of it. But a very, very talented, um, very talented. Who, who always hit the mark. He did, was, he really which did. Which is the important And some of, his, some of his latest um, sketches with uh, Brian Dore have been some of the best I've seen. I mean, he's kept this high standard up. He's, he's never... 
never sort of waned, so no, to speak. No, yeah, no. Right, no. Right. So say so he also came and did promotions for a yeah. radiothon, etc. Oh, I'm sad I never got to meet him. Yeah, yeah, a delightful bloke, and um, and as we say, a, a very funny man as well. But as I and a great um, grammarian as well, all, but all sorts mm. of things. And um, he'll, well, I think the you know the even the conservative media is talking about how he's going to be missed and. All that, so yeah. there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Poor old John. Yeah, um, the the Herald Sun. Um, we give it a bit of mention every week. But <laughs> done, it, done it again. The, uh, this week they've got a headline: "Dunce upon a time on P one," which was last Thursday or so, I think. And uh, well, might have been Friday, whatever day. Um, and um, fairy tales could be at risk in public schools from moves to degrade the much-loved stories for gender bias. And it's it's um, saying that um, they're, they're concerned that they're going to ban fairy tales. And I thought their real concern would be that if you banned fairy tales, the Herald Sun would have to be banned. <laughs> <laughs> that's very good, Kevin. I like that. Um, that's, that is, that so, is very, that's very good. I so like I can that. understand their concern. <laughs> Oh, you've cheered me up with that one. This one also I found fascinating, uh, and this was in her- yesterday's Herald Sun. See, it's a great source of news. We'd hate it to go out because fairy tales get banned, because it does provide great news for us, and particularly for satire, of course, for the week that exactly. was. But, exactly. Um, it says, Scott Morrison's conservative cabinet colleagues have shot down a plan to change negative gearing, and it goes on about that, that he wanted to, but the conservatives knocked him off. Now... The awful implication of this is that as far as this government's concerned, Scott Morrison is not a conservative. <laughs> God, that's a scary thought. Yeah. I mean, it's a scary, it's thought. scary thought, isn't it? He's not a conservative. They name um, Peter Dutton and Matthias Corman. Mm. But Scott Morrison, I mean, if he's not a conservative, is he some left-wing plant or something? He's a communist. Oh, yeah, I think you know right. that about Scott Morrison. I hadn't picked it up. He's oh, very subtle he's about it, isn't he? such a communist. Oh, how subtle can you get? Ah. And you'll also be pleased to know that the government's going to spend $25 million over and above the money for the Metro Tunnel, $25 million to overhaul traffic um traffic monitoring in order to keep traffic moving in these areas where it's going to get choked up. But some of the stuff that it includes is um, one and a half million of new CCTV cameras to monitor inundated traffic routes south of the CBD. Now, it's all very good to spend one and a half million, but all you're going to do is look at the camera and see what they're choked, I would have thought. You're a glass half full man this morning, yeah, and a, as and opposed a, to a glass a half cup empty. Of, cup of tea cup half, of tea half, half full, full yeah. yes. Now, I mentioned last week, and I thought I'd um, bring it in because it, it, it strikes me as a, it's, it's a stunning piece. Uh, I mentioned last week the, the Financial Review had an editorial the week before about attacking unions. The headline is Long Sad Decline of the ACTU. And they, this, is, this is as pro-neoliberal uh, arguments as you could possibly get about anything. And it opens by saying, if my brothers were on a building site, I'd like to be a CFMEU building site. New Australian Council of Trade Unions National Secretary Sally McManus told the the attending crowd at her first National Press Club appearance. Then it goes on to attack and say that they've been fined for this and fined for that. The court warned that if unions such as the CFMEU... Now, these are laws, of course, that stop unions being unions. So they're breaking laws that stop them taking action on health and safety and all those things or their right to even attend um, a a workplace. Anyway, the court said 
If it can simply choose to publicly break laws it doesn't like, pay the fine and go on reoffending, the rule of law will be seriously damaged. And wouldn't that be a tragedy? That wasn't in the editorial that last bit, by the way. <laughs> even, I didn't think it was. <laughs> even worse, courts could become seen as a pro, quote process which is pointless if not ridiculous. Wouldn't that be good too? But that, that again wasn't in the editorial. Now, the same could be said for most of the maiden speech of the new ACTU boss. They use boss with unions as a pejorative yeah, and with employers as wonderful people. That's, they do, don't they? Interesting, yeah. yeah. Which marked the sad and rather pathetic decline of the modern trade union movement from an institution looking out for the long-term interests of its members and even the nation into an undergraduate organisation railing against, now this is the bit I quoted last week, against abstract ideas like neoliberalism now... <laughs> What's abstract about neoliberalism, for God's sake? I mean, it's there. It's reality. It's very, very, very real. Yes. It runs society. There's it's nothing abstract about neoliberalism. Hardly abstract. <laughs> Denouncing wage theft, that's in quotes, of course, by them, and advocating breaking laws it doesn't like. Now, I don't need to read on too much because I think you get the sense of it, where it's going. Mm, um, do. But it's... Uh, it's an extraordinary um, editorial. And then seemingly unconcerned with the long-term impact of artificially high wages in, on joblessness, the unions instead seem determined to get the biggest short-term pound of flesh for workers, take an appropriate cut and use the proceed. That's cut to the, to the union, of course, and use the proceeds to purchase political patronage from the Labor Party and so sustain the Industrial Relations Club and the monopoly control on the supply of labour on the nation's work sites and wolves. Isn't this terrible stuff? I mean, how awful these unions are. The problem with the outlook of Miss McManus and her ilk is it relies on an outdated concept of an inevitable conflict between capital and labour, as if, you know, we know there's no such thing as class struggle in this society. No, or cl- we're a or class class, society, classless society. Yes. Instead of adopting the pragmatic views of former union leaders like Bob Hawke, Bill Kelty and Mark and Martin Ferguson, well, mm. workers' heroes all there, who understood that Australian <laughs> industries need to be competitive in a globalised world, Miss McManus still looks inwards and thinks that there is one rule for the rich and one rule for the rest of us. Uh, Well, yes, we do. (laughs) The answer is yes, we do. Um, And the conclusion is, um, I'll just now to the conclusion, but I think people realise that this is a pretty um, progressive and uh, well thought through editorial. The sad fact is that with fewer workers choosing to join, the unions are gripping more tightly to their rhetoric and institutional power given by government through the Labour Party to support itself. It will, however, be ultimately self-defeating. Technology companies such as Amazon won't care about the arcane nostrums of a dying 20th century organisation when doing Australian workers out of jobs. Now, again, what's 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 arcane nostrum in, when it comes to fighting for workers, etc.? I don't think it's too arcane. I think it's pretty clear. I think it's very clear. Yeah. Very clear. Uh, yes. Anyway, so they've been telling us for years in these things that um, unions aren't what they used to be. They have to, you know, they have to stop being so radical. And, and carry on with this rubbish and do good things. You know, with unions, we'd accept unions if they really did what they're supposed to do. But Andy, you've have you discovered what story is here, and you can you can go to the mic and tell us about it. I believe it's an Earth Matters special. Yes, and it's in two parts. So we'll listen to the first part first. Yep, and then and we'll listen to the second part it. second. Sounds great. <laughs> yep, look forward to it. Okay, we'll go to that now. Yep. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Could you just begin by introducing yourself and how you've come to be in your role and 
Would you call yourself an earth lawyer? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so my name is Michelle Maloney and I grew up out in the middle of Queensland um, at a little country town and my pathway took me to ANU to study law and political science. Mm. And through many years of exploring different ways of working, I really settled into working with um, civil society around community development and other kinds of projects, more so than any kind of private practice as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. But how I became part of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance is a lovely story. Um, Back in 2009, um, a wonderful academic over in Adelaide called um, Dr Peter Burden hosted the first wild law conference in Australia. It was part of the work he was doing on his thesis. Mm. and it explored Earth jurisprudence. It was a two- or three-day conference, um, and it was a bit of a game-changer for me. I had moved far, far away from working on anything to do with law, um, but when I went to this gathering, there were 70 or 80 people there who were engaging with wonderful material from deep ecologist Thomas Berry um, and from a a lawyer called Cormac Cullinan, and the book is called Wild Law, A Manifesto for Earth Justice. And at that conference, some lifelong friendships were made, and... Mm the very beginnings of, I guess, a a movement um, of lawyers and now much more than just lawyers around these wonderful ideas of trying to return industrial society back to something that we lost a long time ago in our um, European-style culture, which is an Earth-centred worldview and an Earth-centred legal system. Mm. So the journey began in 2009. To cut a long story short, by 2012, we had incorporated as a small group called the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, and um, from there, we started to think about a whole range of projects and programs that we could run together to help challenge our legal and governance system in Australia. Which connects to this idea of an earth jurisprudence, and it's, it does seem to suggest that our existing environmental laws and heritage laws aren't enough or aren't sufficiently protecting the earth. And um, could you just explore a little more why you think we need a new legal framework? For sure. Look, um, I think the easiest way to start the story is to really come back to the work of Thomas Berry. Thomas Berry was a wonderful deep ecologist, and he argues in a lot of his later writings, particularly a fantastic book called The Great Work, Our Way into the Future, um, that the underpinning structures of industrialized society um, are all deeply flawed. Um, They are human-centered, focused on a very obsessive pro-growth mentality, And it's the single biggest cause of um, using up and destroying the planet. Um, Interestingly, he started life as a deep ecologist, but it's his work challenging governance and law that really speaks to lawyers like myself and many others um, around um, the fact that when we look at whether it's climate change or the broader issues around the ecological crisis, whatever systems we've had in place for the last few decades, we know they're not working. Mm. Environmental law really in its sort of modern European-style industrial Western system started in the 1970s. Um, Mm. Environmental law has achieved some wonderful things, and I don't want to bag it completely, but it has fundamentally um, just been mitigating around the edges of a pro-growth, human-centred, dominant world culture. And that all sounds grandiose. What does that actually mean? It means that, for example, in Australia, our legal system is very much geared to help human beings achieve whatever they want at very little Uh, with very little consideration for the natural world. When we see um, this severe extent of logging in this country that is both um, legally allowed and encouraged by governments, even when it's not even cost-effective anymore, when we see the decimation of forests 
between 1788 and today. Mm. Um, when we see these massive coal mines being not just legally allowed, but encouraged by governments at a time when all of the world's uh, scientific and, and sensible community knows that this is a very, very bad, scary, destructive thing to do. Well, we know then that the system, our legal system, our legal, economic, political and governance system is geared towards this bizarre, obsessive idea that we can just use up everything in front of us with very little impact or it doesn't matter or the Earth community doesn't matter. So Earth jurisprudence takes the world from a very different point of view. It doesn't look at singular pieces of law reform. It actually looks at shifting the whole system, um, thinking about the cultural change that needs to happen to get people back to thinking and understanding their place in the world as we're just like every other uh, living organism on this Earth. We have evolved here. We're part of it. It's part of us. It's very special. And our legal systems and our, our day-to-day lives should be geared towards maintaining and nurturing what Thomas Berry called the Earth community. Mm. Um, and really, a lot of Indigenous cultures offer us very clear examples of a very different worldview, a very different kind of legal system, um, and there's much to be learnt from that. I was wondering about how you see uh, critiques of colonisation and Indigenous dispossession relating to these ideas around earth jurisprudence and deep ecology. Um, And I've certainly seen from looking at the work and the Tribunal of uh, Nature Rights that there is a lot of um, voices of First Nations people. But how do you see... Yeah, for sure. You're spot on. Your reading and your analysis is correct. I mean, I guess from an earth jurisprudence point of view, and maybe I'll stop using that word. A lot of people get a bit thrown by this jurisprudence. Mm. Jurisprudence is a word that's bandied around. It just means like the theory and practice of law. It's really more about the theory and the history and the meaning of law. So we call it earth laws. Mm. And it's not just about law. It really is about governance. I often joke that governance is the sexy stuff. It's about all the rules and the ways that we work together as any collective society, whether it's in the home, the tuck shop, or the boardroom. So governance is important. And yes, the origins of Thomas Berry's work on earth laws, but also many, many other people who've looked through the lens of deep ecology at the world crisis, or even um, ecological economics, you know, all of these people are looking at um, looking at the world from the point of view of how do we sustain life rather than destroy it, and how do we create structures that, that reflect our understanding that we are merely part of it, just a humble part of it, actually. And so by protecting the, the natural world or you know the extension of the non-human world, we also have to look at how we treat each other. Mm. So number one, colonization saw really the same forces that are destroying um, the natural world today started hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago with European colonization. Um, this this need for certain communities to leave their homes, to go forth and, and you know literally rape and pillage somebody else's home, take all the goodness from it and take it home so they could make money out of it. I mean, it's a sickness when you look at so many cultures that didn't move and didn't wander off and hurt other people. Um, you do wonder why the colonising powers um, were, were doing this and what they were up to. But more instinctively here in Australia, it's not just about the inequities between humans and the horrors of colonialisation um, that launched themselves upon this continent in 1788 and continue actively, very actively today. It's also about paying deep respect to phenomenal cultures that had worked out you know, an Earth-centred, steady-state economy and an Earth-centred worldview 60,000 years ago. And that's the Aboriginal people here. 
Um, they're a very special culture, and like many, many, many other Indigenous cultures around the world, um, they really did work out and understand and prioritise the Earth community. I mean, obviously, you've only got to look at the, the, the science to see um, the state of this place when, when the Europeans invaded. So, mm. so for us, certainly for the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, front and centre is respecting and understanding um, that the First Nations people here never ceded their, um, their rights or their obligations to country. Their caring for country for millennia is what has enabled modern Australian society um, to flourish. Um, and certainly, gosh, it's, it, it, when the more you learn, the more you delve into it. And I'm, obviously, I should have said up front, you know, I'm a descendant from um, whitefellas who settled, slashed, invaded Australia. So mm. I come with um, a great burden to, to, to undo as much as possible in my lifetime and to be a fairer human being. Yeah, thanks for drawing out the, um, what I see as well as the essential links between the work. Um, and it's really good to see because sometimes I feel like it's a bit lacking in the environment movement, a uh, yes, decolonizing analysis. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. I've, this is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. La, 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 la. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. I am also interested in how the earth laws are currently, I know you've set up some uh, structures to currently try and play out some of these earth laws and how um, they could be used. I guess it's part of an imagining of a different um, way of governance and tribunals and things. So, I mean, one of the most tangible examples seems to be this rights of nature tribunal. Um, yep. And there was one held last year in Brisbane, as I understand. And how did that, like, how does it happen? How were the cases heard and were there rulings that came out of it or recommendations? Um, and were there any particular cases that kind of struck you as powerful? Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. And um, the People's Tribunal for the Rights of Nature Australia, which mm. is its full name, or Rona Tribunal, um, is a sort of a humble but exciting uh, project all at once. And I'm really keen to share with you um, an overview of how it came to be and what our plans are next. But maybe before I do that, if it's okay with you, it might be helpful to, to just let you know the way that AILA is structured. Because sure. you kind of, you know, we're, we're stepping into the space of, well, how do we take these big flash ideas and turn them into something practical, you know? Mm. Um, and so just with just a couple of minutes background, we have basically designed, um, I guess, an approach to all of our work, which is linked to these five core themes. So if you take the starting point that Ayla's theory of change is embedded within this practical approach and this theory called Earth Jurisprudence, and really if we're advocates for Earth-centred law, governance and ethics, um, it basically means we need to rethink the legal, political, economic governance systems so they support the Earth community. Mm. So if that's our vision, then how we turn that into practice really matters, otherwise we're just wasting our time. So we've created these sort of five core themes of work, and they are changing culture, reconnecting law and governance with what matters, building community, and by that we mean civil society, 
creating alternatives and transforming law and structure. And these five core themes really matter to us. Our programs uh, and our projects and initiatives all fall within one or two. Um, there are fluid mix between them. But it sort of shows that we don't think just changing um, some pieces of law on the books um, is going to change the future. It would certainly contribute to it. But right now, with the current political um, situation where, um, like many other industrialised countries, we've kind of moved backwards in the last 20 years, away from the glory days of the 1990s and ESD and and much more, we're seeing much more of the, like the rise of the right, um, the dying thrashes of the fossil fuel industry, you know, and in mm. Australia and around the world, we feel that we politically have gone backwards. So we think that transforming law starts with changing culture and rearranging the way we think about the natural world and our place in it. Mm -hmm. So Ayla's projects all fit within those core themes, and if anyone's interested, we've got a little overview of those themes and some very cute little logos on our website, which is www.earthlaws.org.au. Great. So within that frame, one of the most powerful things we've discovered is that creating alternatives, actually I often jokingly call it show and tell. If you can show people a really different way to not just think about the world, but to frame it and to create the rules and to twist things around so that they would in fact be earth-centered, it's just a nice way, it's like a shortcut for people to sort of have a look at how things could be different. And it certainly inspires people to not just think differently, but even tweak their own work so that maybe they can be part of that. So that's where the People's Tribunal for the Rights of Nature fits in. We're very strongly of the belief that it's about creating an alternative legal system. So, so let me just tell you then briefly about the tribunal. Um, it stems from uh, the International Tribunal for the Rights of Nature, which was created in early 2014, in January 2014, by the international network that Ayla is part of, the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature. Mm -hmm. And we all came together for this um, really amazing summit, people from all around the world, from the global north, global south, indigenous, non-indigenous, it's about 100 of us. And while we were there all getting together and talking about our strategies for earth-centred governance and rights of nature laws, the Ecuadorians, and for those who are listening who know Ecuador is one of, was the first constitution on earth, modern Western-style constitution to introduce rights of nature laws, but the Ecuadorians were very frustrated with the lack of support for the rights of nature provisions from their, their politicians of the day, and they designed this international tribunal. I was lucky because I was at the summit and I put forward a Great Barrier Reef case to go into this People's Tribunal and it was heard in Quito. Mm. And again, if anyone's interested in the details of that, um, they can have a look on our website. There's a few links there to it. From that, um, we decided that we would like to create um, um, a Rights of Nature Tribunal uniquely for Australia. Um, at first, we did uh, like a regional chamber. I think that was in 20... might have been in late 2014... And um, we connected that to the, to the Great Barrier Reef case. Um, and then in 2016, we put together the plan to run Australia's sort of first really dedicated People's Tribunal. Mm -hmm. So the People's Tribunal last year um, had four cases. Let me see if I can remember them. Mm -hmm. um, it was the, so the, what, the interesting thing about the tribunal, of course, is it's twisting the law completely. It's actually mm -hmm. saying, in this place... This citizens' tribunal, it's not government, it's just people coming together and challenging the destruction that's happening from a very different angle. So the plaintiffs, if you will, um, are actually ecosystems within the natural world. Mm. So 
it really gives you a space to examine the law from a very different space, like as if we were genuinely guardians of, of, of the natural world instead of destroyers. So the cases heard last year um, were the forests of Australia mm. versus the federal and state government's continued allowance of logging, uh, the Great Artesian Basin yep. versus governments and the coal seam gas industry, um, and it looked particularly at the challenges and then the destruction of, of the water table created by the CSG and the fracking industry. Mm. We also had um, some amazing uh, First Nations people come over from the Fitzroy River, the Kimberley, yeah. and spoke for the Mardiwara River um, and challenging its, the, the government's inadequacy in managing it in such a way that it was going to flourish into the future. Mm. And then the final one was the atmospheric commons in the Great Barrier Reef versus the Australian government and the fossil fuel industry. So yeah, I saw that one. They were the four like... cases. Great. I, I saw that one and thought, wow, that's, you know, awesome. It's really ambitious. It's just putting it out there, the atmospheric commons. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, we realised we wanted to do more than just speak for the reef. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and because the atmospheric commons, you know, without that beautiful thin layer of um, atmosphere around our planet, there would be mm. nothing here. So it's a pretty mm. important part of the Earth system. So, so yeah. So, look, it was a one-day thing. It was very ambitious brought together between 30 and 40 speakers and we had 200 people attend. It was at the Banco Court in Brisbane. And um, we've got some written judgments that are nearly ready to come out. It's okay. taken a little while because um, we're a small NGO and yeah. we're not funded. Mm. So if anyone's listening and you love what we're saying and you have money, do think about donating. Um, small little side footprint there. Oh, for sure. Um, but we're hoping that within the next, probably within the next couple of weeks, we're going to have a really new website just for the tribunal and mm. all of the video footage from the speakers and such and presentations will be available but what is exciting is that we're now working on the 2017 tribunal and we're shifting towards um, just having one major issue per tribunal so that mm. we can bring more and more local folks together to do that um, and I am really pleased because we're going to be heading to Adelaide mm. and our people's tribunal will be challenging the, it'll be the bioregions of South Australia challenging the nuclear industry. Great. We're going to have three <laughs> cases within that space. One will be the legacy of Maralinga mm. and what that has done to the land and the people there. The second one will be the long-term um, uranium mining that's been going on over there at Roxbury Downs and a few mm. other places. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is the most contemporary and the most challenging for the locals there who are battling it um, are the various nuclear waste mm. dumps that are being proposed for South Australia. So, yeah, we're very excited about that. Yeah, that's great to hear. And actually, yeah, I've done a lot of, bit of an aside, but, yeah, a lot of anti-nukes activism and actually was hearing about it from Gillian Marsh oh, um, good. when she was down in Melbourne for the nukes free strategy meeting. So, yeah, yeah um, definitely a timely and great place to have the next tribunal, I reckon. That's right. And I think what we're thinking at the moment is um, if we can say every second tribunal be out somewhere other than Brisbane, mm. then that means we can be a roaming space for, for folks to come together around issues. But then every other year we'll do it in Brisbane, which is Ayla's um, kind of base or heartland. Um, and that, that enables us to kind of build the momentum we started back in back oh, so far away back last year so mm. but yeah look I, I must say that I never planned for it to take so long for us to pull the materials together from the tribunal last year but now that we've got our kind of system set up we're really we plan to have um, the recommendations or the judgments from the people's tribunal in Adelaide come out within the month after that event so that's that's the pattern we'll be setting from here on 
Okay, um, that was um, Michelle Maloney. Her name, Michelle Maloney, that's her name. Yes, the lawyer who was interviewed by Emma Crunch from our Earth Workers program. And thanks to Emma for letting us use that. She had no idea we were going to, but I think someone at the studio did tell her that, actually. But uh, thanks, because it's a wonderful program, and I thought it was... I hope our listeners agree. I think it was such a good interview about Earth justice and Earth law that it was important to uh, give it a second airing, and so we did. It was, we, it was good to hear. And yeah. we've sat back and... Um, and just being very slothful, really. Okay, so joining us here, we have Aaron Scheibner. How, how are you going? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. And now you're here today to talk to us about a documentary that you are making based around disability and public transport in Melbourne. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that or how you started and what got you interested in, in that issue? Sure. Um, well, the film brings forward the gaps in the system. Um, it's about bringing forward the systematic... Um, discrimination, the, specifically the infrastructure. Uh, once you build a train station, once you build a tram stop, once you buy a tram, it will last for decades. Yes. So it needs to be done right the first time. Yes. Um, they're starting to do some things, but there's a lot of retrofitting that is still going on. Uh, I'm become more aware about social justice. I started as an animal rights activist and I thought that was the only thing really yeah. what in the world that was uh was going wrong, but I my uh I became so much more aware as time goes by. Exactly, yes. And um it's such an important issue. Um, Can I just ask you when you say they started sometimes they're doing the right thing but there's still a lot to be done. What is the right thing that needs to be done in this situation? Well, they need a f- they follow the uh, Disability Discrimination Discrimination Act, the disability standards, but they need to involve the disabled community m- more from the start. Mm. Um, sometimes they just bi- they build a train station and then they, they 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 do all the right things by the law. They get a disability uh, consultant and this and that. They follow everything, but sometimes. If you're not actually experiencing, um, if you don't have a lived experience with a disability, um, it's very hard mm. to understand yeah. of what, like, there's an example with Digger's Rest and um, Train Station. It's a, it's a few years old now, but there are some issues with the ramp and it's really close to a set of stairs. And so, like that, for example, or... Um, I mean, the overall, <clears throat> the overall dis- systematic discrimination, I mean, f- is the trams, mm. the flat, ch- the, sorry, not the flat, the, the stair trams. Yeah. It, it's very yeah. hard for people to access that. Yeah. But even the ones that have the um, access, wheelchair access, not every stop has it on the route. So, you know, like when they first put them in, they're only in the city, those stops. So if you got on in the city, you couldn't get off again. You went up the other end and come back again, um, which is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, there's more stops now out there, but there's still stop, you know, there's still stops people can't get on or off if they're in a wheelchair. Exactly. Or well, I mean, it's just, it's, it's for any, anyone with a disability you don't have to. You, you can be a wheelchair user. Uh, you, there's invisible disabilities. There's people with mm. crutches, mm. Uh, and there's yeah, there's and just you, older people who are a bit unsteady on their feet. All those problems. Yeah, I mean, but there's 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 lots of young uh, disabled people who are working, and you know, um, it, people do judge you for what you look like. Mm. Like you get on a tram and everyone's sitting down, and some people. 
need that seat and it's very hard to ask for it when it's like the terms yeah. are chockers but yeah. you've got brought up a good point about the uh ex- about the accessible um tram stops and trams um according to all aboard uh which is an a disabled advocacy group yep. um their figures based on tram stops and accessible trams is that to access as a wheel as a wheelchair user you can only access about six percent of the entire tram network yeah. wow yeah. that's that's yeah. a small amount we, we were involved many years ago in trying to save the St Kilda and up and um Port Melbourne railway lines because of the problem of access at the time for people in wheelchairs in particular um and so they there's an example where there were railway there were railway lines where people could have access. Once they took them out, um, you're relying on the tram stops where you don't always have the access. So it's um, you know well, that was what we were fighting about. But another point, um, I sort of I got involved with the disability groups going back into the 80s, fighting for some of these public transport issues, and then they said they were going to make the system totally accessible by in 15 years from then it'll be totally accessible. In 1990, they said it would be totally accessible in 15 years. In 2000, they said it would be totally accessible in 15 years. And I think now they're still saying it'll be totally accessible in 15 years. So we don't seem to be moving all that far. No. There's uh, been, I, mean, they, I know there's been a lot of improvements, but there's still a lot to go. Definitely. Um, yeah, they keep on getting exemptions from the Human Rights Commission. Um, but there, really? are, there are things they can yeah. do. They have the resources... There are small things they can do to try to go towards uh, more accessibility. Mm. But they, I think it's like all or nothing. They talk about like we're accessible, the, the, the whole public transport system. I mean, publicly they talk about it, PTV, we've got this, we've got that. They, they just need to be you know, direct and say, hey, we have this that's accessible, and sorry, we're working on this instead of just... Uh, Right. You know, just pret- pretending that it's it, that that it's all being done. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and the biggest problem I imagine will be the retrofitting of older infrastructure as opposed. To, I know you said there's problems with the new infrastructure, but I suppose the the big issue is the retrofitting. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's definitely definitely a a, a big thing. Um, about two years ago, I was on Alexander Parade in front of a uh, petrol station yes and the pole for for the um for the bus stop was positioned that there was n- you couldn't get around if you were in a mobility device yes and i saw a, a a person in a wheelchair go through the petrol station because that was the only way for them to pass really yeah, yeah. so uh then i i came back to it last year and then i took photos i tweeted ptv and i decided i was going to tweet every day the Mm. photo until they changed it and it was on the third night that they they did it fantastic (laughs) yeah fantastic it was a i i I was like it was a really big win a very big win and it's it's very uplifting to hear a bit of non-violent direct action can have such fast results keep achieving yeah Yeah, that's a good one yeah absolutely the other one of course is not just people in wheelchair but you get people say who are blind or have you know visibility problems um they they really need very clear directions, et cetera, on public transport, and often it isn't there either. Um, they need to, you know, they really need, eventually they have to ask someone if this is the stop or whatever. Uh, in many cases, 
Um, that's a, are you looking at those issues as well? Yeah, I actually I interviewed Graham Innes. Um, oh yes, the, the ex commissioner. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Ex disability commissioner. For those who don't know, yeah. yes, he got sacked um, by the government. Yes, during the Abbott. Yeah, um, yes. So that is definitely an is- issue um, in Sydney. Uh, Graham he actually won a case against Sydney Trains because they would not do announcements. But here in Melbourne. Um, the older trams, they are now starting to uh, retrofit with uh, LED uh, and sound for when the stop is. So that, that, that's mm. a good thing. Mm. Um, but I've, I, when I, I used to live in Newport and on the train at North Melbourne, um, all the time it would say, it would tell the stops going backwards. So a lot of that, that, that has to be that has to be fixed. I'm not sure how yeah. big of a problem well, that is. It doesn't happen too often, but occasionally, the even on the train, it says the next station is. Sometimes it's wrong. Yeah, um, mm. and I've if it's wrong that. and you you can't see, well, that's a bit of a problem. Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, you have to ask someone, but what if there's no one around and you're on, on your own? It's mm. kind of a, mm. a tricky situation. Yeah. It, it is, and I imagine at peak hour as well, it must be very difficult. I mean, the trains and trams get very, very crowded at peak hour. I mean, you've, you've got to have all of your wits about you, really, to get on and off. Um, so do you, do you find that the, the times of high capacity is an issue as well and dealing with that? Yeah, that's definitely an issue. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you access... If if you're if you're working and you you have a disability and you, you just you need to get home just like any anyone yeah. else, um, yeah, I, I don't really have any answers. I've, no, no. Uh, I've it's so I, I see it the the flat trams, the stair trams, yes. the trains are also full. It's yes. it's uh, it's. Yeah. I don't have an answer for that. There no, a, no, no. I'm still working on it. Oh, aren't we all? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, that's right. There, of course, speaking of trams, and you mentioned earlier about the fact that there's not so many seats now. Recently, there was a report about the number of injuries on trams for everybody. But surely the fact that there isn't enough, aren't enough seats and there's more standing room, they reckon they've, they're saying now they, they're upgrading them by... Um, by, in fact, putting in more straps to hang on to, which is a big breakthrough, isn't it? Um, but um, yes. but uh, that must be a further problem, Erin, and the fact that there's not enough seats in the trams and people are left to bounce around. That's right. I've actually read that report. It was uh, an inter- independent commissioned report on the E-class, and yes. it's very jarry. And, yeah. and um, the people don't know the E-class is the modern tram that has all the standing room and things, yeah. Yeah, there's not enough places to hold. Uh, they're too high, both on trams and trains. Mm. I've, I've actually had uh, contact with the Yarra trams, and they are they are planning to uh, do something about mm. that. More In, straps, yeah, more straps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there definitely needs to be more places to hold on because they say hold on, but like where are you, you meant mean, to hold on? Well, if it's in the middle of a crowd and mm. there's no, you know, there's no strap and you can't reach the thing and whatever the bar is near you mm. you're just lip straighted yeah yes. oh, another another issue is that there's not enough places to press mm. the button and that's true that's yeah. that, oh, that even affects yeah. everybody i mean yeah. i yeah. i know that that's right yeah i mean that that's that's the thing with all of this it, it's not just to to make sure everything's accessible for it's it's for everyone mm. and john um, john mcpherson who was here last week uh, made the point that these modern trams are really designed uh, as a light rail they're not designed for the stopping and starting um, in traffic 
Um, so as a as a light rail where they're, where they're not constantly stopping and starting to to dodge mm. cars, they work better. But as as trams, where we're having to compete with traffic, and they're not best suited mm. for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, also the other point you just raised, though, it's interesting. I mean, if you're blind, how do you know where the press button thing is on those trams to just for the next stop? That's a good. That's a good question. Um, I guess you just have to to, to know the the, 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 the tram, tram and know yeah. yeah yeah or 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 ask someone I suppose but yeah. it's yeah. all I mean what if people you, want to what do it if the only passenger um, yell out to the driver <laughs> stop <laughs> well right. you can't the dri- with these days <laughs> that tr- you can <laughs> unless you're in a, in a flat tram the driver you can you can't really talk to the driver no, mm. no. yeah. No. So um, tell us about the documentary, Aaron. How far are you progressed through it now? Are you near the end? Is it still ongoing? Um, um, I'm near the end. Fantastic. I'm very close. Yes. My, I had some technical issues with my computer. My video uh, that card often broke. happens. That often happens. Yes. <laughs> so uh, I've I've worked around it, and so I've got a few more interviews, and um, I'm ha- halfway through cutting cutting the. Uh, mm. A rough draft. Ah, oh, fantastic. And there's some, you've interviewed a lot of interesting people, including Ellen Sandal and a lot of people like that. So it'll be a very, very interesting and Did you interview Martin Stewart? No. I'll talk to you after the show. Okay. But yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, well, I, no, but it's worth mentioning. Martin Stewart, we've mentioned on this program, and he's a mate of ours, but he was a blind activist for a long, long time. Coming home from work at Richmond Station, he, he had, in fact, taken to court... Uh, the argument that guards should not be taken off trains because of the danger for people, and, and, and he lost the case. Ironically, then he was going home, he put his white cane into the, what he thought was the door. It was the space between the, plat- the, tra- the, 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 um, the uh, trains, um, and, um, and he fell onto the, fell onto the line. And um, because, of the, because there was no guard, the driver took off with people screaming, and he ended up losing an arm and a leg, as well as being blind in the end of it all. Now, you know, he's a prime example of someone who suffered from uh, the system not being adequate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, speaking of that, I mean, the, with the level crossings going on, um, there was a, a wheelchair user who who uh, got stuck in the tracks a couple of years ago. I can't uh, can't remember it when, but. It's good that they're starting to make those mm. changes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot, I mean, a lot of state, particularly stations, they bring and they mirrors cover, but they don't. In fact, a lot of stations that have a bend in the platform, the driver can't really see the whole train, mm. Um, mm. and that's a problem for everybody, really. Yeah. But women with prams and all sorts yeah. of things, or people with prams, but mostly women. Um, yeah, so you know, it's a problem all around. Yeah. yeah, so it's great that you're great that you're looking into this. It's an ongoing conversation that we need to have. We always have to be vigilant about these issues, and if we take our eye off the ball, so to speak, mm. then we we end up with an inferior, less mm. equitable system. So people like you are so so valuable in terms of keeping everyone uh, on their toes to make sure that people get the best deal. Mm. So it's called Little Tram Formation. So it's T R A M S. Formation, yes, yes that's so, right. And um, so, we'll, listeners, keep an eye out for it. Is there is there anything else you'd like to? Well, I was going to ask um, when it, when it is completed. How do you plan to get it distributed or get it out? Uh, through film festivals, through community screenings. I don't know if I can get uh, mainstream distribution, but I'll try. Mm. Um, 
But I mean, the, I forgot to mention that it's not just about this film. I want to open an open conversation with all the stakeholders, the state government, uh, Yarra Trams, Metro, and all the public transport users because it's an issue uh, for all of us. Yeah, mm, definitely, definitely. Keep up the good work, Aaron. Thanks. Yeah, Thanks no, for having me. That is awesome. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, and we'll get you on again when the when it's out, so okay, we can promote cool. it and talk about it more. Definitely, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. At our normal fee, of course, for promotion. Oh, the normal yeah, fee, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> so we, we'll talk to them about fees later. <laughs> yes, right. We'll right. raise that with you a little later. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'll make you coffee. Ah, okay. okay, we're, we're winding up, and uh, we're being wound up, in fact. Uh, but look, th- and look, Lynn, oh, well, you can thank Lynn. But, um, thank you, Lynn. Thanks yeah. for pressing the buttons, and thank you, Andy, yeah. for also pressing the buttons and looking over everyone. And oh, thanks oh, to Emma Crunch. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and thanks to Emma Crunch for allowing us to use that. Well, didn't know she did allow us, but anyway, allowing us to use that uh, yes. that interview we did, which I think was excellent. It was excellent. Thanks to Erin. And next week it's our normal housing week, so we'll have April break or probably April from the Housing with the Aged Action Group and other issues. And there's new planning, yet another planning um, idea for Melbourne, the new the new Melbourne plan. Yet another. The 33rd in the last three years or something. Yet another. Um, so we might even have a yarn about that one next Fantastic. week. Fantastic. Okay. All the best, everyone. Take care.